Hello and welcome to episode number 24 of the Speak Your Mind podcast. My name is Tyler Smith. Joined with me as always is my co-host Riley Cheyenne. Today we had a pretty interesting um, episode. We had Muhammad Leela, who is the CEO of Goodable. If you don't know Goodable, please go check out Goodable on Twitter now. It is the, I guess, your first ever good news site. Uh, Muhammad is an incredible human being, and he used to be an international war zone correspondent for CNN and many different news outlets. And I mean, has seen it all. Um, his the trauma that he's been through, and to now turn it into what he wants to do, and that's just bring good news to the world, um, was commendable. It was uh, we had. We talked about a lot. We talked about mental health. We talked about emotional health. We talked about um, a wide variety of things. And I think just the knowledge he brought and his perspective on life now was just, uh, it was super profound to hear. Yeah, I mean, I think when we uh, heard some of his stories, we were, we were taken aback that um, we were speaking to someone who's actually experienced these kinds of things and um, being in these war-torn countries and being held at gunpoint and and all these crazy things. It was, it was just uh, pretty amazing to hear what he's been through and now um, how he's out on the other end trying to just provide people with good news. So uh, we had a lot in common with kind of what we're trying to do here with Speak Your Mind and comparing that to Goodable. So um, we definitely had a lot of fun talking to Muhammad and uh, it made for a great episode. And we just wanted to touch on one um, unfortunate thing that has happened in the hockey world. Um, little Ben Stelter has passed away. Um, I was fortunate enough to meet Ben and his family in the Oilers playoff run, and um, the, the impact he left on the world and the amount of—I uh, mean, I, yeah—I I just don't, don't think there's any words. Um, I, I think from Riley and I, we would just want to send our love and thoughts to the Stelter family, um, what he brought to the hockey community, his smile, his energy, um, and you know the, the constant fight that he had in him was um, just to be able to, you know, just meet him and, and, and see him. And um, I, I just, yeah, rest in peace, little Benny. Um, and before we dive into today's interview, we wanted to highlight that Premier Blue Cross is a proud sponsor of Speak Your Mind. One in five people deal with mental health conditions every year. Everyone has a story. So no matter who you are, it's okay to ask for help. Premier Blue Cross, always in your corner. Now let's jump into the conversation. All right, so Muhammad, um, it's crazy to think that only, we only met a couple of weeks ago, um, and I mean, I've already, I've already been grown really fond of our friendship, and um, just to hear more about what you're doing in the world is, is so refreshing. But I want to really kind of rewind and take it back. Um, you know, you you talked about your international war zone correspondent, like being that in that role. Um, I want to even go like even farther back like your upbringing a little bit and how you and ultimately ended up getting to what you were doing um, by going overseas and by being in the war zone correspondence and, and all that. Yeah. I'm happy to start as early as I can. And Tyler uh, and Riley, thank you for having me on. I, I love what you guys are doing. I think it's so important uh, for men to be open about what's going on in their mind and be vulnerable and know that it's okay. And we're kind of all, struggling with the same things in life. You just don't always see it in other people. So I'm flattered to be on, on the show. Um, wow. So uh, where do I start? Okay. So I was born and raised in Toronto. Uh, my family, my parents are originally from Africa uh, and their roots, meaning their ancestors came from India. So I had a very multicultural upbringing from the time I was young. And I remember, you know, some of my earliest memories were 
my dad would watch the news and he would watch the national on CBC every night at 10 PM. And he would have his uh, fruits and grapes. And that was like his nightly, um, his nightly ritual. And I would have cookies and milk and I'd be having my cookies and milk during the national. And I, I'd see all these names on the screen and they had at the time they had like really funny sounding names. Right. So like you'd watch stories and I'd hear like, Anna Maria Tremonti or, you know, uh, Ian Hannah Mansing or uh, there's a whole bunch of them, right? And I thought to myself, wow, these guys all have really interesting sounding names and so do I. And so maybe there's hope for me to like become something one day. And I just, I was so fascinated with like people traveling around the world and showing all the stuff that was happening. And I kind of always knew from the time I was young that I wanted to be a storyteller. And I remember I was in grade seven uh, in my science class, Mr. Yo's science class in grade seven. And he gave us an assignment to like, you know, draw, draw a diagram of like some organism, like they would, the, the way they do in like a science class, right? Like a single cell amoeba, I think that's what it was. And I said, nuts to this, I'm just going to write a story. And so I wrote this story about uh, there's a, a friend that I had in class and he woke up one day with superpowers and his superpower was that he could point to anything and it would automatically recycle into something that like was something else. And so, so then I handed the, the assignment in uh, on a Friday, on a Monday, Mr. Yo comes in and he announces to the class, he goes, class, uh, one person didn't do the assignment. Only one person in the class didn't do the assignment. And I'm like, oh crap, this is me. I'm just going to get in trouble. And he goes, I want everybody to gather around. So he, he gathers everybody around and he goes, Muhammad didn't do the assignment that I asked. And I was like, oh man, it's like, you know, it's the, if you've ever been singled <laughs> out by a teacher, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's like the worst feeling in the world, right? So he hands me the paper and he goes, Muhammad, I'd like you to read this to the class. Like, and I thought it was a punishment, right? So I thought it was like, you know, he was embarrassing. Me. So it was, it was short. It was like two pages, two and a half pages or something. And at the end he goes, you know what? science doesn't need more diagrams of single-celled amoebas. What science needs are people like this who can get people excited about like environmentalism and recycling. And that's what the world needs right now. That's what science needs. So I got an A plus and I, like I <laughs> broke awesome. the rules. And, yeah. and I remember from that day on, I was like, yeah, I'm going to, somehow I'm going to tell stories when I get older. I didn't know how. Yeah. And one thing just led to another, you know, I, I, I went to journalism school and I became a local reporter. I had, <laughs> I had long hair and a big shaggy beard and somebody was crazy enough to put me on TV. That, and was, still just kind of, that was still in Toronto? Yeah. So I was, so Toronto has this channel, the station called City TV. Yeah, yeah. So City I'm, from, like the, I'm from St. Catharines, Ontario. Okay. So, so when I'm I was familiar City, with City TV, when I grew up at City TV, it was like all the legends of broadcasting, right? Like if you, if there was like a Ron Burgundy in Canada, <laughs> he would have worked at City TV. Like it was just, it was just one of those places where like everybody had a weird sounding name and everybody had their own personality. And they showed me the ropes, like all these, all these like veterans of the industry took me under their wing and told me how to tell stories and how to shoot stuff and how to write and I just worked my way up. So I, I went to CBC where I was anchoring CBC News Network across the country. And then I went uh, as an international correspondent to ABC and then CNN. And I wound up covering a lot of war zones. In fact, I lived in Afghanistan for quite some time. And it wasn't like on purpose. I didn't say, hey, I want to be the guy that covers war zones. 
it was just because like that's what the network needed they needed somebody who could fly around and go to these places and i happened to usually be the closest person and i averaged 100 flights a year wow. i've been to every war zone you can think of um i've been shot at held at gunpoint survived uh, at least three assassinations and uh it's been a wild ride it's been a crazy crazy ride so just quickly what is the definition of an international correspondent just for listeners i've kind of learned it as i've gone to research you but what would that definition be yeah so there are, you know as you know there are all sorts of journalists there are journalists who are like editors and reporters and writers and photographers and um you know if you're a reporter in toronto or vancouver or like you know, edmonton or something you tell local news stories right when the um you know, if there's a traffic accident or if there's uh, like a shooting or a city council meeting or something like that, you're the one that gets assigned to go and cover it. Um, typically, that's like starting level, right? That's where you start as a reporter and then you work your way up. So an international correspondent is somebody who like works for, you know, a network in another country. So in our case, it's Canada or America and kind of just flies around the world mm -hmm. and covers big stories. So I was based in South Asia. But then I also spend a lot of time in Turkey and other places. And usually the way it works is like, you know, I get a call at midnight and the foreign editor says, hey, we just got a report of an earthquake that took place in, I don't know, name a country like Kazakhstan or something. And they're like, can you go? And man, I love that feeling. I love when somebody calls me at midnight. Because you know why? It's not like there's there's no sarcasm there. That's totally being like... no. I, I I'm being serious. Like you, <laughs> yeah. if you could see me, I'm be, I'm being I'm being yeah. really serious. like I love it because when 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 you're the first phone call somebody makes, it means they trust you, right? Yeah. So in hockey terms, it's like you know there's there's a minute and a half left in the game. What line are you putting on the ice, right? And you're down by one. It's like you know. So in Toronto. Right. You know, it's Mitch Marner and, you know, it's Austin Matthews. They're going to be on when there's a minute left in the game and you're down by one. Like that's just it's understood. Yeah. Right. And so that's the equivalent in the journalism world. It's like I want to be that guy that gets the call at midnight because some big news story happened and they, you know, I have to get on a plane. And in fact, I would have my luggage pretty much packed and ready to go at all times. So I could get a call anytime and be at the airport within an hour and be on a plane and, um, I wanted to be the first person on the scene. That's amazing. I so, actually went through it. I went through an article you had about all your, uh, your luggage bag. Oh yeah. And it was kind <laughs> of like people who were like in need of some advice on whether it was hiking or whether it was and how they could relate it to your experience. So I thought that was, that was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I'm that guy that when you, when you get on a plane and you go through like the security line, Right. I can zip through that baby in like five <laughs> seconds. I, I know, like, I know exactly what's got to come out of my bags. I know how to put them. I, I never wear a belt. Like I always yeah. wear um, like a cloth belt. Cause you, you know, the belt, you're going to lose 10 seconds of your time. Right. I'm like, I'm in and out, man. I love that stuff. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, okay. So you get obviously the role of international correspondent. Um, we didn't talk about this last time we chatted, but how do they prepare you for that? Like, was there certain courses? Was there certain um, mental aspects? Was there certain things that they put you through 
in order for you to prepare yourself into what you're going into? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so the mental side of things, they don't prepare you at all. There's no, hey, we want you to sit down with a therapist or a psychologist or anything like that. There's no preparation for that. What they do do is um, specifically when you're going to what they call hostile environments. So that doesn't just mean war zones. It could also mean like um, you're covering protests, you're covering um, um, civil unrest, right? You're going to dangerous places. That's what they call hostile environments. And in those cases, what they do is they send you for a weekend of training um, with like ex special forces guys in the military. And they walk you through, hey, here's what you do if you get kidnapped. Here's how to check your hotel to make sure it's safe. Here's how to um, hire a driver. And here's how to not make yourself vulnerable when you're overseas. And that training is really helpful. And I still use it today, right? Because one of the things they talk about is, you know, if you're kind of like in a Western country, you, you kind of have an expectation that your hotel's not going to get bombed, right? Or things aren't going to catch fire. But if you're in other countries, you just don't know. And so even now when I'm traveling, I use some of that training to like, you know, when I go to a hotel, one of the things I do is like, I make sure I know where the emergency exits are, right? Because you just, you never know. Yeah. Wow. That's so, that's great. Because uh, like, you've only seen it on movies, like I've only seen it on movies or whatever, but to actually like prepare and to have to know that it's like, it's in the back of your mind, I, I find crazy. What's like the, the, um, the, I guess, relationship with when you're in war zone or when, when you have protection around you, what's that relationship like between the fighters and the guys who are, are there to, to fight and you as, as a correspondent or whatever? I, I'm always curious how that is, like, because they have to have you, like, they make sure that you're okay and things like that, right? Like, how does that work? Yeah, that's such a good question, right? So it depends sort of like who um, is hosting you. So I have a lot of experience embedding with the U.S. military. Um, right around the first Gulf War, so like 2000, or sorry, the second Gulf War, like 2000 and was it two or 2003, um, the U.S. military changed its PR strategy. And what they said was, you know what, let's just start letting reporters and journalists tag along with us. Right. So let's let's let them see what we're doing. And it was the smartest thing the military did because it, it allows them to sort of control the message a little bit because they show you that part of the war that they want you to see. They don't they don't show you the parts where they're losing or the parts where, you know, uh, bad things are happening. And so when you're with the U.S. military, what you do is you put in a request and you're like, hey, I'd like to visit, you know, like, for example, if I wanted to go to Kandahar in Afghanistan, I'd put in a request and I'd say, I want to go visit this base and I wanna see you know, the operations that are happening. So they'll take a few days, they'll put together an itinerary for you. And they'll say, okay, we're gonna fly you into this airport. You gotta get on this aircraft. Then so-and-so is gonna meet you at the base. From the base, you're gonna overnight here. And the next day we're gonna take you out into the field and we'll show you sort of like where the battlefront is. When the US military does that, they assume responsibility for your safety. And what that means is like, it would be a huge disaster for them if they had a journalist from an American network get hurt while you were embedded with their troops. So typically what they'll do is like, they'll assign somebody who, whose job is to look after you. And sometimes that's, um, like, so the US military has these things called public affairs officers. 
they're like PR officers, right? But they just tag along and they, they, they manage your journey. But then when you're out in the field and it's dangerous, some people, some US commanders will even assign some of the soldiers to like do close, I forget what it's called. I think it's called close personal detail or something where like you had like, so when I went out, I had three soldiers that were flanking me on either side to make sure that I was like, you know, not going somewhere I wasn't supposed to, or like it wasn't dangerous. They only do that when you think you're going to take incoming gunfire. Um, but they, they do look after you, right? So they'll make sure you have food, they make sure you have internet, um, food on remote us base is actually really good like the further out you go so i remember i was like this base in the middle of nowhere and they had steak and lobster what? and i was like how are, and they fly it in right they'll fly it in from the um, crazy places but they, they the u.s military looks after you other places are kind of maybe not as um advanced as the u.s military so if i'm embedding with like afghan soldiers you know, they're, they're not the same. They're not as close as like, they're not as advanced. So like, I just hang out, eat whatever they're eating, kind of fly by the seat of your pants, so to speak. Wow. Yeah. Um, I, I had an instant kind of question that just came to mind. And I mean, it's just because Riley said before, I mean, we never experienced that. I mean, we have, you know, an understanding through, I guess, the movies and everything about military and as you started to develop relationships, I guess, with military and with soldiers, I mean, was there things you started to learn about? Because, I mean, I just have so much respect for, obviously, soldiers and, and anybody who's on the front lines and anybody who wants to do that for, um, you know, their country or protect. And I just I, I'm just curious, you know, like, what did you start to learn about, you know, that that role in life, you know, being a soldier and, and being there to serve and protect and. Um, was there anything that you didn't even really dawn on you before you started to really engulf yourself with with the military and with all these soldiers? Um, I don't even know where I'm really going, but I hope you kind of understand my question here because I'm just yeah. I'm just super fascinated by the military and you know what they do and what they put on the line for you know for us and for our countries and yeah yeah no listen I I appreciate the question I totally get it um, I think one of the things that I learned was. Um, you know, the, the military sort of like reflects the population, right? In, in, a, in a way, right? So it's, it's not the most diverse place, but that's okay. Um, people join the military for all sorts of reasons. Usually it's because they want to do something good with their life. But in America, there's a slightly different dynamic where like some people will join it because they give you free education. They'll like put you through college or university or whatever. And like, you, like you want to become an engineer, and so you'd be like, okay, I'll serve four years so that I can become an engineer and then leave and like join Tesla or SpaceX or something. So people join for all sorts of reasons. When, when you've just joined, you know, if you look at somebody who's like one year into a, an army and they deployed maybe once versus like, you know, a senior leader, there's very different psychology. And, and the senior leadership in the military, they're, um, I don't want to use the word wisdom, but there is a certain sense of like, they understand the gravity of what they're doing. And I think, I think that's why, you know, you think about like the old days, right? Where if you had two knights and they were like on opposite sides, like they knew that they were going to fight, but they deeply respected each other, right? There was a, like, there was a level of chivalry where like you respect the enemy. And you see that the higher up you go in the military, because I think they've just seen more 
maybe of their friends get killed or they've been through more battles or they've they've been through battles that didn't go well and so you you respect the enemy a little bit and that's what i saw the earlier soldiers might not respect the enemy as much because they're like yeah let's go in and freedom this and all that stuff and like they just haven't seen enough of life to be able to like respect that like hey people could die today or tomorrow right and and the senior people like you can have those conversations with them and it was I was really surprised by that. Like, I thought it would just be like, hey, let's win, let's win, let's win. But like the, the older, like the higher up you go, um, you, see a, you see a different side where it's like, you know, the senior levels up, it's almost like, you know, they wish there was no war, right? Like they wish they didn't have to fight. They understand the young guys are happy there's a war because they're like, yeah, this is what we came here for. But the older guys are like, no, listen, we've seen more than you. And there's a lot more, you know, to this than what you think there is. Yeah, I, I agree with Todd. Like they're some of the most interesting. One of the best books I've ever read. It's called Fearless. It's about I think his name's Adam Brown. And just like the ability to like adjust and his perspective on life and just like I would recommend it to anybody um, to read it like it it just taught me so much. And I just have, like I, like Ty said, so much respect. Um, can you hit us with like a, a good story? You, you talked about like being caught at gunpoint and some of these crazy experiences that you've had. Can you hit us with one of those? Is that, is that allowed? Yeah, of course. There's, there's so many, right? So on, on the lower end, you know, I've embedded with um, uh, Iraqi forces as they were taking on ISIS. Uh, I was reporting outside a checkpoint um, I, there's a picture of me like on the street and there's an ISIS village kind of in the background. And, you know, you're not supposed to stay in those places long because when ISIS finds out if there's like a VIP or a journalist or something, sometimes they'll try to target that location. So they're like, hurry up, Mohammed, shoot, the, shoot your stand up, which is like when you're talking to the camera and let's get out of here. So we left. And the next day they bombed the checkpoint and it was just completely destroyed. Um, oh, but the, the one that I remember, so there are like probably three times where I think I'm lucky to have survived. And one of them was I was embedded with US forces in uh, a province in Afghanistan called Helmand. Um, I think it was Helmand or Ghazni, I don't remember, but it was a province where there was a lot of fighting going on. And so, you know, we went out on patrol with, uh, with the US army and we went to a village where they were handing out books or like backpacks or something to like a school there. And on the way back, you know, you're in these big armored vehicles, right? They're like little mini moving fortresses, right? Think of like a monster truck, but with armor on the outside. That's kind of what it's like. And um, so we're on our way back. And the leadership at the base, um, when they have journalists coming in, they, they host these things called military briefings. And sometimes they're confidential. And what they do is like they bring you into a room and usually there's a map or like some sort of drawing on the wall where they show you, okay, here's where the fighting's taking place and here's where we know the Taliban are. And like, it's, it's confidential stuff. And so they'd set up a, uh, a briefing for us with uh, some of the senior people on the base. And this was a joint base where American soldiers were fighting side by side with Afghan soldiers, um, with the Afghan army, which was being funded by the US. And, you know, we ran late at the school that we were at. So we were about five minutes late. So the meeting had started without us and um, we, we were five minutes outside the base. And as we're in the, the, the military vehicle, we hear an announcement on the radio and it said, uh, green on blue, green on blue, base under lockdown. 
And what that means is that somebody on the Afghan side had attacked somebody on the American side. And that's all that we knew. So what had actually happened was that uh, the Taliban sent in an infiltrator into the Afghan army, which was common. That was one of their strategies. Had an infiltrator in the Afghan army. That infiltrator knew that there was a high-level briefing taking place with the base's leadership all in that one room. He got in a pickup truck with a with a truck-mounted heavy machine gun, right? So if you think of like standing on the back of a pickup truck with a huge machine gun on a turret, that's what it was. And he pulled up outside that room and he shot up the entire room. Um, oh. And something like something like two people died or four people died inside that room. And we didn't know this until we got back to the base. And uh, there, 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 so I see this is tough for me, right? But if we weren't five minutes late, we would have been in that room. Jeez. Like we, that was our plan. It was on the itinerary. We were supposed to be there. And I think those five minutes saved my life. Oh. And then I also feel like, you know, I feel so bad for everybody else who was injured or hurt or died in that incident because, like, were they holding that briefing just because they knew that journalists were on base? Uh, or it wasn't journalists, it was just me. Like, I was the only one. Yeah. I'm like, did they set up that briefing for me? Right? And the only fact that I never got there was because I was five minutes late and those people got injured. Like, I think about that sometimes. But that's just, you know, there are other stories like that, but uh, ever since that day, I will never hold it against anyone if they're late to a meeting, if they're late to school, because yeah. you just don't know, right? So it gave me a little bit of a different perspective on my own life. Okay, now I'm glad you said that, because my next question was going to be, I, I watched that reel you have on your website, and like right away, the first thing I, I thought was like, all these experience that you've had, it's got to be like, from day one, since you started till now, the perspective change on life has to be just crazy. Like, is that that fair to say? Like you, or yeah, maybe there's yeah. a moment, there's maybe there's like a moment, I think that one you just spoke about, it's could maybe be it, but like, it's gotta be such a perspective change on life of what's important and things like that, no? Yeah, I think that's a good question. You know, you know what I think it is, is, some people can process things very quickly, right? And that's not always a good thing. If you just if you just immediately process something and move on, like those things will come back to you at some point, right? Those demons in your closet, they don't like no demon is ever just going to stay in the closet forever. It's going to come out again once in a while, right? And so I think for me, um, I'm still processing a lot of these things. Like, look, the last time I was in a war zone was maybe three, four years ago, maybe more. I don't remember. But like, I'm still processing these things, right? And I think, I think that's okay, right? To take time to process things. And you can't force those things. And, and one day I'm gonna sit down and have these amazing like realizations about life and like what it means and all this stuff. But like, you know, I haven't really sat down and, and, and organized those thoughts yet. Um, I, I do remember, there was an incident when I was at CNN and I had just, I'd gone from like two weeks of reporting nonstop. So I went from like one attack in one country to another attack to another attack. And I wound up in Afghanistan. I've spent so much time in Afghanistan. I'm very comfortable there. Like I have friends there. I know the streets, like I know the food. I blend in because the way that I look. 
And I remember I was interviewing somebody on the street where an explosion happened and I'm interviewing him and he goes, he goes, don't you see where you are? And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, look at the pavement, look at the sidewalk. And I looked down and there's still kind of like blood stains on the sidewalk from the explosion. And I got the blood stains on my shoes. And if you've ever had blood stains, it, they're really a pain to come off. And, and oftentimes they don't. And so, you know, I just, I was like, okay, there's, there's blood on the ground, whatever. Like I've seen it before, right? If, it, I mean, come on, you play hockey, you guys have seen blood in different places, yeah. right? Yeah. And I didn't think twice. And then I remember I came back home and I looked at my shoes and I'm like, wow, I'm not going to get that blood off my shoes. And that's like, it, it, it was a trigger for me. And I yeah. didn't even realize it was a trigger, right? Like sometimes you think the big things are going to trigger you, but they don't. Oftentimes it's like the small little things, yeah. right? That you're not expecting that nobody warns you about that will just kind of stick in your mind. And so for me, that image is very vibrant of like just interviewing this guy on a sidewalk where there were still blood stains. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird how, uh, I think I've, uh, I can't remember if we chatted about this, but I've definitely, um, developed a better relationship with triggers now. Um, because I think for some reason, I don't know if it's the masculinity side of things, but it, for some reason, you know, before triggers would just be like, I'm just going to push that off. And I never thought about it. The fact that, like you said, it would come back, you know, like demons come back, triggers come back. Like if you don't process that, I mean, it's not like it's just gone, you know, it's still going to come back. Um, I want to talk about trauma. Trauma I've learned has come in many, many forms for many, many people. And trauma is very, very complex. Um, there's so many layers to trauma and everybody's, you know, everybody's trauma is very different. You're experiencing a lot of obviously just trauma and trauma in general, but also more or less, I don't know if this is wrong to say, but secondhand trauma. Um, how did you at the time even begin to try and process this trauma or is it a case of like you said I'm now going to try and process these things or how how did that trauma how does it now have an effect on you if you um, I guess weren't processing it at the time yeah you know it's, it's such a good question because the reality is that so many war zone correspondents don't deal with the trauma they just ignore it and you're so busy that you don't even have time right it's like you go from one assignment to the other to the other you know um treating trauma or, or sort of like working your way through those emotions and triggers, there's no shortcut, right? There's no like, hey, I'm gonna spend 10 minutes thinking through this every day and then boom, no, like it takes whatever time it takes, but it takes time, right? It could take a few hours, it could take years, right? So people don't know this necessarily, but like, you know, war correspondents in, in specific have really high rates of alcoholism. Um, they have really high rates of like reckless behavior, like reckless sexual behavior, um, reckless like physical behavior. And it's not unusual. And so sometimes you'll see headlines like, oh, you know, journalist caught in a brothel or like, you know, journalist kicked out of a bar in or arrested in some other country because of something inappropriate that they did, right? It's not unusual to hear this. And usually it's because they're carrying a tremendous degree of like trauma and stress and they don't know how to process it. So for a lot of people, they process it through alcohol um, or drugs or women. I would say those are the top, or, or in the case of women, like, you know, just sexual relationships. 
I think those are the top three. Um, I think the, the advantage I had was most international correspondents are single or they're in a relationship. They don't have kids. They don't have family to think of. They don't have any of those, those things. I started as a foreign correspondent when I already had four kids, which is very rare. Most people don't have any. And so I had a grounding and I had an anchor, right? The anchor in my life was coming home and playing Scrabble with my kids. Like I, I you know, I go, I have these crazy experiences, but then I come home and I'm the most boring person in the world. Like I come home, it, like, like even now, a good day for me is when I can play uh, NHL 2K21 with my kids and not 22, but 21. Like um, that's what I do. And so that's what I would do when I went to war zones. I'd go off to war zones. I'd come back home. Um, I'd bring gifts for my kids as though I was on vacation. Right. And, and I'd come back and I just kind of have like a boring life. And that helped me get through. Right. I'm, I'm very happy having a boring life. That's kind of like most people want to have an exciting life. Right. It's like, Oh, I want to travel. I want to do this. I want to be on TV. I want to do all those things. It's like, I had all that, but what was making me happy was coming home to my kids. Yeah. And that's what helped me get through. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that kind of like we can kind of tie that into the to the goodables or goodable thing you've you've started too, right? Because I it resonates with me because like we've ha I've had all these different experiences, definitely some struggles, but there's nothing more than I I love than just either watching a short clip of somebody doing something super nice or reading about some somebody maybe not even nice, maybe just like heartwarming. I just saw as Aiden Hutchinson, the tight end, the first round pick for the Detroit Lions. And he was just singing Billy Jean, um, Billy Jean <laughs> in front of his whole team. But like there was so much warmth in that room. His teammates joined in with them. It was obviously a little bit of rookie, like making him do it. But like there's so much warmth and happiness in there. And that like that made my day. I must have watched it six times, sent it to all my friends. But like those simple things and those simple moments of happiness that you that you see or read about they can go such a long way and help people who have these traumas and have these experiences built up and they don't know how to process them or whatever i think that like for for me the way i see goodables that's what it can it can help me with so i'm just curious i guess how did that all start for you like what was your vision what was your aim how did how did this process start so the story of Goodable starts when my team and I were held at gunpoint. Um, it's happened before. We have training. We know what to do. This one was was bad because people were getting shot around us. So not my own team, but like innocent people sort of in the area. And I'm very protective of my team. I made sure we made it out okay. Um, went back to our five-star hotel in Ukraine and had like tuna steak for dinner. And it was just a crazy day. And when I was on the flight home from the assignment, I kept asking myself, why is it that they only sent journalists to cover bad news? Like I'd been averaging 100 flights a year and every single time I got sent somewhere, it was because something bad had happened. And I wanted to know why. Why is it that they only send journalists to cover bad news and not good news? It's not like good news doesn't happen. Good news happens every day around the world. In fact, good news happens way more often than bad news. So why was only bad news getting the coverage? And I started looking into the data in terms of like what people were watching and why they were watching it. 
And I noticed a pattern happen over and over again that our most popular stories were never about bad things. Um, they were always about ordinary people doing incredible things. You know, like somebody um, helps, uh, like like you you guys were talking about, right? You know, somebody singing Billie Jean in front of like their, their teammates or, you know, a group of people helping an, a blind person cross the street and like a security camera picks up that footage, right? That's the stuff that people were interested in, but nobody was doing it. And so um, I had this crazy idea of using news in a completely different way. We know that news is one of the biggest drivers of depression in the world. And news has power to make people get up off their couch and do something. Usually that's something negative, right? So you see something on the news and this happens with mass shootings all the time, right? You're fed up with what you see on the news. You're suffering from some sort of mental health stress or condition to begin with. And you pick up a gun and you go and you shoot your neighbor or you walk into a school or you go into a shopping mall and you just commit like a, a, a tragedy. So if news has the potential to make somebody do that, doesn't that mean it also has the potential to help you? And couldn't you use that power of the news to improve somebody's life, to improve their mental health? So it was a crazy idea that let's build a news platform that uses the power of good news to help, to help people, to help improve their health, their anxiety, their depression, to like relieve all these things. Um, people laughed at it in the beginning. They thought it was crazy. I, I, I walked away from a great job at, at CNN where I was flying around the world and I was on television all the time. Um, to having nobody in the world believe me that we could do this. And when I left CNN on social media, I was reaching around 200,000 people per month on social media. Within a year of switching to only good news, I was reaching an average of 4 million people per month. And since launching Goodable, we now reach 40 million people per month on social, plus another 40-ish in physical venues. And so what that means is that goodable content is now available in something like 30,000 locations across America um, through, through like the screens that you see, see like restaurants, bars, doctors, offices, that, that type of thing. You can now see goodable content on those screens. And the best thing in the world for me about going down this route, like it's really hard. Whenever you try to do something new and you go against what people are doing, it's really hard. And there are still days that are really, really bad. Like I, I have a tough time with them. But the best thing is, is that we get messages from people all the time telling us what a difference we've made in their life. Some people have even told us we've saved their life. And that's the nicest thing that anybody could ever tell you is like, hey, you don't know this, but you helped save my life. Like, I, I, I have this belief that like, you know, when I die, I want to know that I left the world better than I found it. And I can say that there are people alive because of what we've done at Goodable. And that's the most meaningful thing in the world to me. Yeah, that is, I mean, I think that's just like the definition of powerful. Um, we talked about how valuable those connections are. Um, I want to know, like, having these conversations, receiving these messages from people, I mean, it's it's a lot in the best way possible. It's uh, It's emotional. Um, it, and it's ultimately because Goodable is creating a culture, um, a culture and a community 
of people that want good in the world after so much bad, um, especially in these past couple of years, it's been very hard for people. And to have so much good in the world because of the culture that Goodable is creating is just, it's, it's, it's so fulfilling. And I, I just, I, I'm just still in awe that we have you on today to talk about it because it is so compelling of, of you to want to do this. So, um, so Tyler, I'm going to jump in and I'm going to yeah. correct you on that, right? So we were introduced through a mutual friend of ours, right? Can I, can I say his name? Yeah. Yeah. Mike. Yeah. So, so Mike Lake, he's a, he's a federal politician out in Edmonton, right? Yeah. Um, he and I connected randomly on Twitter and so Goodable's not political and I'm not really that political, but um, you know, when a politician reaches out, your first thought is like, they want something from you, right? <laughs> Um, Mike and I just kind of hit it off. He just seems like, you know, he's a, the best. A, a decent guy, you know, he's even told me, he's like, look, I think of things sometimes like beyond politics, right. That like, it's not about who you're voting for. It's like, can you make a difference with what you're doing? And, um, so Mike is the one that said, uh, he, he, he emailed me or texted me and he goes, Hey, can I introduce you to this guy named Tyler? Um, and I was like, I, you know, there's a zillion Tylers in the world, right? <laughs> A zillion so, Tyler Smiths too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm like, I, I don't know who this guy is. And he goes, oh, so he's he was actually one of the survivors of what happened um, in Humboldt, right? And uh, Tyler, when, when you and I started talking, I was just so inspired by your story and your life journey. Like you've talked about my trauma and the things that I go through and that it's real and it's, you know, it's it's what I have to deal with, but it's not unique right there are hundreds if not thousands of people that deal with what i've dealt with yours was so unique because you know you're a young kid i guess when the, I, I, technically I, i'd say relatively speaking you're still kind of a young kid when this happens to you and like you're sort of like thrust into this thing that like you didn't choose you didn't want that to happen like you didn't know it was going to happen i went into things knowing what the risks were right i would go into war zones knowing hey i could get shot something bad, like I knew that. I have a ton of respect for people where things happen that weren't in their control because there's a very different process for how you deal with that trauma and deal with those emotions. For me, it's like, I can blame myself. Well, I'm dumb, you know, I chose to do that. But I just have a tremendous amount of respect for you because um, to go through that, come out the other side and be aware of, what your mind is doing to you, right? That's the best way to describe it. Because when you're processing trauma, your your brain does stuff that you don't always want it to do, right? And most people aren't aware of that. So most people, they suffer from like serious depression. And it's like your brain is doing stuff and you're kind of just following along, right? It's like, okay, it's telling me this is bad. Okay, this is bad. It's telling me to become paranoid. So I became paranoid. It's telling me to do this and you can't just follow along. But the way to overcome that is to understand sort of like what your brain is doing and the fact that like your brain is not you, right? Like you are you and, and this just so happens that you went through a traumatic experience where your brain is kind of telling you something that you wouldn't normally do and it's kind of a break from the pattern. So listen, like you're talking about me and like wars and stuff, but I just have a mad amount of respect for you. And look, Riley, this is the first time we're meeting, but dude, man, the amount of pressure that comes with like making it to the NHL and like the grind that you go through and the way that you have to, um, like, like the, the physical conditioning is always going to be there in any sport. You've got to take care of your body. 
But to take that next step and be like, no, like, dude, you got to take care of your mind. Like, I just, I got, I have a tremendous amount of respect for both of you. Oh, wow. <laughs> that was so nice. I got goosebumps, Muhammad. Yeah. Well, geez, <laughs> I didn't think you would flip it on me like that, but I mean, I, I, I can't thank you enough. Yeah. That, that, that really does mean a lot. And um, I think Riley was about to say something. So Riley's no, I, I was just going to say, I think that's why we're doing this though. Right. Like there's so many different people experience so many different things based off whatever they get into. And it doesn't have to be like your story versus my story, or like, I'm not allowed to feel these certain ways because Ty dealt with this very, very traumatic event, or you dealt with seeing something that was very traumatic and you were involved in this crazy experience. Like everybody's, everybody's experience is so individualized. It doesn't take away from the feelings that they should feel because like you said, like your brain is just your brain and it works in certain ways that it's so complicated but in order to understand it, we kind of got to step back and and kind of like give ourselves a little bit of more, a little bit more credit or whatever compassion, whatever it may be. So I'm glad yeah. you kind of you brought that up. I, I kind of feel like, you know, if we thought of the brain more as a muscle, right, than who we are, then you start to see the world a little bit differently, right? Like, you know, any athlete knows this, but you might wake up and you might have a sore knee or a sore shin, or your bicep is tough because it's just working, you were just working out yesterday. Like, you know, your, your body doesn't always work at 100% all the time. And it's the same with your brain, yeah. right? Your brain's not always going to, you know, if, if you throw out your back, you're not going to be able to lift like your garbage bin to the curb, right? And then when your back gets better, you'll be able to do that, but you still got to be careful I don't know if you guys have thrown out your back, but man, it's like you get to an age where like I threw out my back for the first time when I was probably 30, 34. And I went to my doctor, right? And I'm like, what the hell? I'm way too young to be like thrown out my back. And he goes, no, that's that's right around the age where like it starts to happen. And I'm like, I work out. I take care of myself. Like, this is not possible. And he, la he laughs. He goes, what did you do? And I'm like, I don't want to tell you. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, no, tell me. So I threw up my back because um, I was at a restaurant and I dropped my pen and it went under the table and it reached un like I, I reached under the table to grab my pen and I was stretching and I just felt like my back sort of like oh, you know, lock up. Right. <laughs> but, but your brain is the same way, right? Your brain can lock up on you and it's not fun. And like, you'll tell your brain, Hey, this is not a big deal but your brain won't understand that. And your, your brain will be telling you, no, this is a really big deal. And you gotta be really worried about this and it's gonna affect your life. And it's like, no, that's just what happens. It's, it's the same thing with your back. Like it's not working the way that you're used to it working. And if you can understand that, like life just becomes so much better. Cause you're like, you know what, this my brain is just kind of acting up right now, but eventually it'll settle down and it'll go back to the way that it was. And like, I, I think, you know, even when you're talking about like, your uh, Riley, your background and my background and, and all that stuff. I think it's incredible that like, it can actually bring people together. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. like, like Tyler, you and I, if we crossed each other on the street and we didn't know each other, we wouldn't say hi. Let's be real, right? Busy city. I, I wouldn't know who you were. You wouldn't know who I was. And Riley, same thing. I wouldn't know like, dude, like this guy's like working on something like 0.1% of the population will ever get to, right? That that level. But like, we're all going through our own things. 
And it's like, you know, if we're going through our own things, imagine how that could unite us, right? Imagine how that could actually bring us together because different backgrounds, different ages, different sports, different whatever. But like, we're still kind of going through similar things. Mm-hmm. I think there's I think there's power in that. And, and maybe that's one thing I've learned from War Zones is that everybody's struggling in, everybody struggles in life. And we're so much similar than we think we are. Even the bad guys, right? Even the bad guys struggle with like, oh man, I have feelings of like doubt and self-worth and all these things, right? And it's like, if we were just focused on like what we're suffering through collectively, I think the world would be a very different place. Yeah. Wow. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I could listen especially, to you <laughs> especially, especially for males too, right? Like, I don't want to, like, there's definitely a difference with conversation topics and being approachable as a male and being open to just diving into a conversation there's always seems like there's there's a bit of a guard up but I found like even with with us starting this and maybe you've had the same experience with Goodable like I I feel like people are are the conversation's a lot easier to start where that person might be struggling and since you talk about it or since we talk about it on a on an open platform that people are kind of drawn to talk about um, things that maybe they wouldn't um, bring up to you if it was just like a base level conversation. I've, I found it with my teammates, like just asking about little things that can maybe help them get through, whether it's like a meditation thing or something uh, in the fitness, like cold tubbing that maybe clears your head a little bit or even just conversation. So I think, like you said, the more you do good and the more you can kind of open yourself up to positivity, I think it's... Um, that energy is very attractive for other people. Riley, do you think um, locker rooms are becoming more open to having these types of discussions? I do. I do for sure. And I love so much about hockey. I think sports in general, I love, there's so much I love about it, but there's also a lot of negativity in the culture and a lot of like stereotypes that it's just like, it can get kind of scary um but I do think it's changing I think it's changing for sure and um there's so much good that can come from being an athlete but there's definitely some things that we kind of got to fix in terms of the way we treat treat substances sometimes the way we treat our body the way we want to fight through everything um the way you treat women sometimes so I think there's little bits of that coming out and I think uh all in all I think we're on the rise yeah, I mean, I don't know. You, you're obviously the experts here in, in the hockey world, but I know in other sports, um, like basketball, for example, I remember a few years ago, he might have still been with the Raptors at the time, DeMar DeRozan oh, came yeah. in and talked about his yeah. mental yeah. health, right? And for sure. he tweeted at like 2 a.m. or something that he was just struggling. Everybody was like, oh, wow. Like this is the first time somebody sort of very openly came out. And since then, there have been a bunch of others, right? Like uh, Kevin Love Kevin has been Love, very yeah. open. Um, and, and a few others. I, I don't know if there's as strong of a presence or a person in hockey that's come out, but um, I think it's only a matter of time before people start coming out and being like, hey, listen, like we need to start acknowledging the, as, as men, right? As men that have all this pressure on us to perform constantly, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's okay to come out and acknowledge, you know, the difficulties and the struggles that you're, you're facing, right? Maybe yeah. traditionally, like, like you said, you're supposed to just 
you know, work through things, right? And pretend certain things aren't happening, right? But maybe it's okay. Maybe it's okay to talk about those things um, so that we be, we actually become stronger. Yeah. Right? I think I think you know. Hopefully, we'll start seeing more of this in sports as we go along. Yeah, I definitely, <clears throat> definitely see a crossover there. Sorry, Ty. There's definitely a crossover there with just how you, how you have your life straightened out and cross that over with how you're performing. I think there's definitely if you can have, you can't have one without the other. I guess so. No, I agree. And ahead, I Ty. think, uh, well, no, I was just gonna kind of touch on that, but like, like I do honestly think that, you know, Demar coming out and talking and being vulnerable, um, just like a a regular person talking and being vulnerable with her family. I think it's crazy to think because it, it does get overlooked, but you, you just never know how many tough conversations you were helping facilitate because of the fact that you're willing to have that conversation and normalize it. I think that's, it's like the, the, the beauty of it. Um, yeah. But I mean, Ty, Tyler, Ty, Ty, what gets you through a difficult day? Um, yeah, like that's, I, I personally, I, I need, I need to sweat. Um, I need to, I need to move my body. Um, and I think that's obviously a tough thing to do because when you're feeling off mentally or emotionally, um, it's not easy to just get up and, you know, go for a run. I think it takes a lot of, you know, of that self-motivation to really get you off your butt. But I do think, I mean, I even just want to just go for a walk and, and, and listen to a podcast, you know, immerse myself in a conversation that I'm not in, you know, just ground myself that way and found finding a little bit of that balance of, you know, submersing myself with my own thoughts, but also just, you know, trying to figure out um, new things that could work for me. I mean, I, I, over the years, I've definitely started to love learning new things in this space um, and kind of creating more knowledge for myself because let's be honest. I mean, we're learning every day. And I think it's just, you know, being able to, to hone in on what works for you and, and hone in on the lessons that really do resonate with you. I find just work for me. Um, but I, I, like, like you said, I mean, I'm still trying to figure it out. I'm still trying to process things. I, I was just in humble this last weekend and, you know, while a full blown banquet is going on, um, me and another one of the guys just went into the rink and, and just sat um, we sat in the rink. It was completely dark. Um, and just to be able to do that again, I think before I would push that off, I wouldn't want to do that. But I knew that obviously, I think we knew that that's something we needed to do um, is come to terms with the fact that, you know, this used to be our home and this is still our home, but it, it looks a lot different now. Um, and I think just something like that and not, not, and not being able or being able to push off that feeling of, I don't need to do that. You know, I'm good. I, I, I can just move on with my day. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and, and same thing, same question for you, actually, what, uh, what works for you? I mean, you said that obviously goodable, there's tough days, there's struggles involved um, and what works for you. Yeah. Um, so on a person, first of all, thanks for sharing that, man. Like that image of you and your buddy at an arena, just kind of sitting there, like that's powerful, man. Mm. Like that's um, like, if there was a photo, like, I'm just thinking like a black and white photo, you guys like out on the bleachers or the, you know, the seats or something, or maybe like on a bench or just kind of sitting there like, wow, that's, that's incredible. Um, for me, I have a couple of things. Number one is uh, I make my bed every morning and it sounds silly, but like, I think if you start your day with trying to organize a little bit of your life, it becomes a little bit easier to organize the rest of your day. Right. And so you start with something small. 
And I make a point of doing that. So like I, I'm married and for a long time, I just be like, oh, well, my wife will do it if I'm up first and she wakes up. And, and it's like, no, now I will try to do it every day. Um, hopefully that makes me a better, a little bit of a better husband. Maybe I was a bad husband before. I don't know, but, <laughs> but I can, I can just say from like a, from like a personal sort of mental health standpoint, that's really important. Just doing the small little things and on a bigger level. Um, I believe that there's far more goodness in the world than bad. Like I think evil exists and bad things exist and all those things, but I think the good is so much, so much greater. And on a professional level, it's like I put all of my energy into showing people how good the world can be. And that helps me get through things, right? So if I'm having a bad day, uh, I just think of like what, uh, how to help more people, right? And that's sort of what gets me through. And that, and that's what's been making Goodable grow. Like Goodable grew way beyond I always knew it was going to be big but it grew way beyond what anybody else thought and if this works doesn't that feel good though you know just knowing that you're doing something so good that is impacting so many people and I know that you have big visions and big dreams still with it but I mean let's be honest you've taken it to incredible levels in such a short amount of time so you know what it's like? Both of you have an experience on the ice and, and Riley, you've played at the highest level. You know, you win a game and you're like, okay, you won. So like, you feel a little bit good, but like, you're not in the NHL to win a game, right? You want to get to the finals and you want to win the championship. And you see this right with like, so Kobe Bryant was a good example, right? Or Michael Jordan, because, you know, there's such competitors. They win a game, great, but they, their eyes are always on like that final vision. And then, you know, they win a championship and they're really emotional that night and then for a couple of nights. And then literally they're back in the gym the next morning training for like the next, the next Stanley Cup or the next championship, right? And I think that's the way that I look at things. It's like, I won't be happy until I win that championship and I've got to do whatever I can to win that championship. So like, it's not, I love that we're helping people and I love that we're growing, but I'll never be happy until we reach the equivalent of whatever a championship is in our industry. And then, and that's when I'll celebrate and, you know, we'll be happy with the team and stuff and we'll do something special. And then it's like, great, what do we do next? I think it's that relentless ambition that I have where I'm, I just won't be happy. Like I joke, right. And, and if you're competitive, you know, this. I tell my kids that if I was ever a janitor, if you gave me six months, I'd be the best janitor in the building. Like I, I've just, I've yeah. got to, I've got to have that. Right. But thankfully, I can't skate for the life of me, so I'll never, uh, I'll never be, you know, a great hockey player. Um, but what I am good at, I need to be the best at it. And so for Goodable, I, I love how it's growing. I love our audience. I love everything about it. But I won't be happy until we can help a billion people. Once we've helped a billion people, then I'll be like, okay, we did something. Yeah. So do you have like a kind of future vision in mind about where Goodable is? kind of gonna go like could yeah. you explain that at all or yeah so we're working on a book deal for potentially a book series we're working on a tv deal for a tv series we're talking to uh, a bunch of different networks about can we start creating goodable stories for them but the bigger vision in all of this is a couple of things um there's still so much more potential to use news as a tool for mental health that we're just scratching the surface of. 
And so I can't give away too many details, but we want to transform um, the way that mental health care is delivered. And one of the best ways to do that is through reviews. So we're looking at some interesting things there um, that should be rolling out in the next few months. And then, you know, at the end of the day, I want to give people a choice. I want to give people a choice and say, look, you could turn on CNN, you could turn on CBC, or you could turn on Goodable. And maybe it's not on, on your TV, right? Maybe it's, um, maybe it's something else, um, but I want them to be able to turn it on. Okay, so we've we chatted about everything, um, and I think um, I think Riley can say the same thing. It's it's been incredible. Um, I got one last question: Your dream NBA final this year, Muhammad? Who, who is in it? <laughs> um, I like when you know you never you never like root for the dynasty. So I love the Golden State Warriors. I think they're great, but like you know, I would love for a team that's considered an underdog to make a big run. I don't know if I don't know if you were you guys were following the NBA, but like I think in like 2008 or nine, the Warriors made this like incredible run to the finals when like they didn't have a, they they were the eighth seeded team and like they made it far. I love those kind of stories. I would love to see like a Dallas make the finals because it feels like they've got a talented team, but nobody ever chooses them to like beat you know LA or Portland like just one of the big teams or the Clippers. So. I love to see an underdog come out of the West. Um, in the East, don't hate me for this, but I've started, like, I, I really enjoy the way the Celtics play. Oh, I love the Celtics. Yeah. I yeah. love they, the Celtics. Like, they remind me a bit of, like, how the Raptors used to play when they won the championship, yeah. right? It's a really deep team, amazing defensive strategies and schemes. Everybody helps on defense. They do the same swarming thing that the Raptors used to do. So I think Boston is due for a championship coming out of the East and the East is pretty weak, right? Like, you know, no disrespect to the Raptors, but I, I don't think they will be title contenders this year. They should get better, but you know, in the East it's really Milwaukee or it's Boston. And if you can figure out a way to neutralize Giannis on Milwaukee, I don't think they're going to win a championship, but Boston, like, okay. So you neutralize, you know, um, Jalen Brown, right? Well, there's like three other weapons on that team. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right? That, and that they're all young best. too, right? I think they're scary, right? Yeah. That's yeah. a scary team. They're all under contract. They have a great head coach. They've got a great front office, um, really smart offensively and defensively. They play well as a team, right? I think they could be like the next dynasty. And the crazy part is um, they're still getting better. Yeah. If yeah. you look at their individual numbers and performances, they're still getting better. So I would love to see something like Boston versus an underdog coming out of the West. Um, because I think it would be a great series. Yeah. Boston isn't a fun city to play in either. Those Boston I, fans, it's the same for hockey. Like hockey is brutal playing there, but they just they're ruthless. Yeah, I can I can imagine, right? But it's it's such a great sports city too, right? Like you know, oh, yeah. they, they've been so successful in like almost every sport over the last 15 or 20 years that um, it's a religion for them, right? Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. All right. Well, Riley just signed in Buffalo. 
So how about uh, Mohammed and I, we're going to coordinate a weekend. I'll come down to Toronto. We watch Buffalo play Toronto and then we'll coordinate it with the Raptors game. Done, done. Like easy peasy. Yeah, I'd love to, man. That'd be great. Uh, Ty, my, my offer still stands that uh, I got to get you at a Raptors game when, when you're here in Toronto next. Um, it'll be a lot of fun, man. I think, you, you know, it's really cool. And, and Riley, like, you know, it's the first time that we're meeting, but you guys are just so down to earth, right? Like, I know you've got this podcast and there's listeners and they, they don't know you and stuff, but like, I can just say that like, you're two guys that like, Hey, if I'm hanging out somewhere, like I'd hang out with you guys in a heartbeat. You just seem like really good guys. <laughs> I would do oh, that, that means a lot. Yeah that, yeah. that does mean a lot. That was like the nicest compliment I think I've ever received. <laughs> I think, you know, like you said, there's a stereotype about athletes in general, but like just, um, you know, Riley for like, for like hockey players that like, there's probably a stereotype out there that, Oh, they only like hanging out with like, you know, their hockey friends or, you know, they're just, they're, they don't know anything about the world outside of hockey and stuff. And like, I don't think that's true, man. I think, no. I think, you know, you've, um, anyways, maybe, maybe it was just the hockey guys that I grew up with that were just like, so into hockey, you can talk to them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, there's, and it's, I think it comes with age too, right? You start to understand that there's way more out there. Um, and that's something that I love most now is that I can share my experience with someone that doesn't have any idea of what goes on but then I can also learn what they do and I think I get that like my dad is he's kind of pushed that into me my he, my dad's part of the Tim Hortons group every morning he goes to Tim Hortons and sits at a table and <laughs> my dream he ta- he's always telling me stories about like uh his his buddies like Rob the Hunter and like Wal- <laughs> Wally the Roofer and Ed the Gas Man so just typical like Canadian kind of thing but it also is like it's important to learn about like other people's lives and their perspective on things. And maybe you don't agree, but everyone's entitled to their own opinion and it makes for good conversation. So I think we can, uh, we can all agree on that. Our dads would get along. I'm telling you, they'd, they'd, they'd be sitting at the same table every morning at 9am at Tim Hortons, just shooting the breeze. Might, might. Yeah. I can picture that. That'd be awesome. <laughs> Yeah. My hot take though, I'm sitting at AW. When I get old and I'm hanging with my boys, I'm sitting at AW. I'm sorry. <laughs> what? Well, they got hotcakes there. I'm going for the hotcakes oh, and coffee. Man. <laughs> All right. right. Well, Muhammad, um, I mean, this was uh this was so refreshing. Um, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I think we'll honestly probably have to do it again at some point because I know that Goodable's uh Goodable's going to the moon. So um, thank you, thank you, thank you. And we will 100% make a Raptors game very doable this year and also a Leafs and, and Sabres game. Let's do it, man. I'm excited. And thanks both of you for having me on. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Speak Your Mind. We hope you enjoyed the conversation with today's guest. You can stay up to date with new Speak Your Mind content by subscribing to our podcast channel or visiting torchpro.com for more. See you next show and have an awesome rest of your day.